25 years ago, the last chapter began in the tragic Lindbergh kidnapping. A police net closed in on Bruno Richard Hauptmann, ending a two-year hunt for a man who kidnapped and then killed the infant son of Charles Lindbergh. In Hauptmann's New York garage was found $14,000 in marked bills. Other damning evidence, an artist's sketch from a description by the ransom go-between. Handwriting specimens that definitely link the Bronx carpenter with the crime. And written on a door, the phone number of Dr. Condon, the innocent agent who paid the ransom. Circumstantial evidence overwhelming in its impact. Welcome to the NJ Criminal Podcast. On March 1st, 1932, Charles Lindbergh's 20-month-old son was kidnapped from his nursery on the second floor of their home near Hopewell, New Jersey. Now, almost a century later, the Lindbergh kidnapping is one of the most famous crimes to have occurred in New Jersey. The trial of Richard Bruno Hauptman, ultimately convicted of kidnapping the baby, was called the trial of the century and the kidnapping eventually led to the creation of what is known as the Lindbergh Law, making kidnapping across state lines a federal crime. Here today to discuss his 2012 book, Cemetery John, the Undiscovered Mastermind of the Lindbergh Kidnapping, is Robert Zorn. Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be with you. I want to begin by asking you, how is it that you became interested in the uh, Lindbergh baby kidnapping uh, such that it led you to write uh, your fascinating book, Cemetery John? Uh, First of all, thanks for the compliment. My hands kind of tightened on the steering wheel because my father was, I mean, although he had a great sense of humor, he was a fellow that was very sober-minded and serious, and um, so I couldn't imagine what he was going to tell me. He said, well, you remember how I told you that I grew up in a German neighborhood in the South Bronx? He said, I said, yes. Well, I said, well, when I was a kid, uh, uh, a, teen- a teenager, there was a man who lived three doors down from us, and he was a German immigrant named John Knoll, and he had come to the States. 1925 and moved to Jackson Avenue where our family had also just moved in 1925 and my father was born in 1916. My dad's story starts really in the summer of 1931, in June of 1931 and this fellow uh, John Knoll uh, took my dad on excursions. He kind of took my dad under his wing. My father was one of six kids. He had five sisters. He was the only boy in the family. And one day he invites my dad to go to Palisades Amusement Park in New Jersey, in North Jersey. And this was like, for a kid in the middle of the Depression, this was like going to Disneyland. It was a really big deal. They had the world's largest saltwater swimming pool. John had taken my dad swimming in Yonkers before. Anyway, so they go to this park. Uh, which sat at the top of the Palisades Cliffs. And strangely, John does not go swimming there that day. Uh, So my dad goes for his swim. And after he finishes, he showers in the the bathhouse and and changes back into his clothes. And and John and my dad are exiting the park. 
Well, outside the park waiting for John are two men. One is his one of them is his younger brother Walter, whom my father knew. John and Walter lived in the they rented rooms for ten dollars a month each from an elderly widow named Emma Schaefer. And anyway, but my dad did not know the other man who to him seemed rather, rather tall. Anyway, uh, the, the men began speaking to, to one another in German, the three men, John, Walt, and Walter. And John knows that my dad doesn't know how to speak German because my grandparents on my father's side had been brought up in the U.S., born in the U.S., and so German wasn't spoken in Zorn home. So John felt free and comfortable about speaking in German in front of my father with, with his uh, brother Walter and his third man. But my dad, he's a you know, pretty astute and sharp kid. He was a very, very bright fellow who ended up being the first person in his family to go to college and ended up earning a graduate degree at Columbia University and so forth. But... Anyway, uh, my dad picks up that John, the third man that uh, is there, John is calling him Bruno. And that they're talking about some place called Englewood. Well, then John does something very strange. Here he's got a, a kid who's 15 years old. He'd never been out of the state of New York before in his life. You know, of course, again, this is the middle of the Depression. And there was no money to be taking fam a family of eight. Uh, on vacations anywhere, and then John d tells my father, "You go on scram. You go on, go on home alone." And of course, my dad said, "Well, aren't you going to come with me?" He goes, "No, you go on home alone." So uh, my father was really shocked by this, and he watched him go off. Uh, John go off with his brother Walter and his third guy Bruno that he was calling Bruno. So my dad is ferrying back across, and he's a bright kid. He knew how to get back to the to the Bronx and back home. Uh, but he's ferrying across the, the Hudson and think, saying to himself, what, you know, looking at the dark waters of the Hudson, looking back at the Palisades cliffs and the park and the Ferris wheel at the top. And he said, what was that all about here? My, this fellow is supposed to be my neighbor, my friend and so forth. You know, he's taught me all about stamp collecting and I help him with his stamp collection. I'm hanging out with him all the time. And here he just ditches me in New Jersey. That This makes no sense at all. Well, you fast forward to December of 1963. Uh, at that point, my father was the chief economist of the Republic National Bank of Dallas. My father walks into, he's 47 years old at this point, and he walks into his barber shop the day and night for he reaches for a magazine, and off at the top of the stack is a magazine called True, and in it was an article about the Lindbergh kidnapping. Now, when Bruno Hauptmann was caught in September of 1934, this is two and a half years after the Lindbergh kidnapping had taken place. This is the greatest, this was the greatest manhunt in history at that point in American history, the hunt for the, the Lindbergh kidnappers. And they all that time they were they were looking for a gang. Uh, they were not looking they were not looking for a, a one person, but they were looking for a gang. They, they concluded that multiple people were involved in this thing. So anyway, the the gist of this article was that Halpin was no, no doubt involved in this thing, and he went to the electric chair in 1936, uh, April 1936. But there were likely accomplices that he had had that he never ratted out uh, that were never caught. 
when Halpin was caught, all of the investigative agencies, the New Jersey State Police, NYPD, J. Edgar Hoover's Division of Investigation, as the FBI was originally called, and the Treasury Department's investigative unit, they all shut down their investigations. So uh, Halpin goes to the electric chair, and uh, nobody is, is looking for accomplices at this point. So They had anyway, their man. Argument. They had their man, right? They, they had their man. They, they, they had spent a fortune, and they were ready to have it done with. Uh, all these investigative units had spent incredible amounts of time and money <laughs> and uh, they 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 caught Halpin, and they they then uh, made the trial of the century, as you called it. Uh, they made it a lone wolf deal, and um, anyway, um, so my dad's reading this article, and he's reading <coughs> about there. Was, and of course, he knew about the name Bruno Halpin; that name was well known. But when my father, when Halpin was caught. My dad was in literally his first month of college. He was the first kid in his family to go to college. He had three older sisters. So anyway, my father's uh, reading about Bruno Halpin. He's, he's reading about how there was a man calling himself John who had collected the, the ransom in a Bronx cemetery. Now, there were two meetings between the intermediary man named Condon, uh, John F. Condon, uh, the elderly educator, whom my grandfather knew from the Bronx Old Timers Club. And so uh, so there was a fellow named John who had met with Condon at both Woodlawn Cemetery, where my dad had just buried his own father in August of 1963, and then also one at St. Raymond Cemetery, also in the Bronx. And then my dad is reading about how uh, the Lindberghs had lived in Englewood, New Jersey, before, while they were built with Ann Morrow Lindbergh's uh, very wealthy family um, in a 40,000 square foot home, uh, while their own home uh, near Hopewell on 389 acres in the Sourland Mountains uh, was being built. So my dad said, wait a minute, that day in 1931, nine months before the crime took place, a guy named John is talking to a guy named Bruno about a place called Englewood and wherever they went or going, I couldn't tag along. So my dad ultimately believed that he, he, that he, he came to the conclusion that cemetery, this un, uh, unidentified or improperly identified kidnapper known as Cemetery John, who became known as Cemetery John, was in fact his neighbor, John Knoll. So he, he read is, that uh, magazine and the light bulb went off. Yeah, that uh, switch, and then then he then he dove in and did the research. And my dad lived. My dad was haunted by his belief that two men had gotten away with murder. And, and my father had tried to reach out to Lindbergh through a mutual acquaintance. Uh, it was a friend of my father's named Robert Anderson, who was the former Secretary of the Treasury under President Eisenhower. And Bob Anderson sat on the board of directors of Pan Am with Charles Lindbergh. And my dad wrote a letter to Lindbergh saying that I know I have uh, uh, very interesting information about that sheds light on the kidnapping. And anyway, Bob Anderson handed this letter to Lindbergh at a Pan Am meeting. And this is probably not long 
after Lindbergh was diagnosed with lymphoma, and he really didn't want to open reopen this old wound. What year and would that never, have been? That was 1972. Mm. This is 40 years after the kidnapping. Lindbergh died in 1974. And, uh, but Lindbergh kept the letter, and it is in pristine condition in his uh, papers at Yale, where they have 3,000 boxes of the Lindbergh's papers. And I spent many, 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 many days there, as well as 130 days at the uh, New Jersey State Police Museum, where they have a quarter million files on the case and all the, uh, you know, the kidnap ladder, all the ransom notes, the ransom envelopes, and all the other uh, artifacts of the case there. Um, so anyway, uh, that is, so anyway, my father uh, tried through a close friend of his who was a former Army intelligence officer during World War II, spoke fluent German, a man named Herman Traub, who was my dad's best friend uh, from his days at CCNY, who became an attorney in New York, and Traub investigated John and talk, spoke to him, John Knoll, who was then living in New Jersey. And uh, even, again, this was in 1973, even 41 years after the crime, Knoll was lying about the timing of his move to New York, uh, still acting like someone who had something to hide. So anyway, um, the years went on, and my dad and I started to you know, sketch out ideas for for doing a, a book on this, and um, as it turns out, uh, he died on Christmas Eve of 2006 at the age of 90, about three weeks short of his 91st birthday. And this is one of, you know, this is one thing my father really wanted to have done. It wasn't for publicity purposes, but he be- believed that the telling of his story would bring a measure of justice to the case. Anyway, so, but I held my dad's hand um, and said, Dad, I, you know, I, I'm going to take up your investigation and someday tell your story to the world. And he, at this point, he was too weak to speak. But he, he looked up into my eyes and smiled and squeezed my hand, and I knew he was happy. So that, Meg, is how I got involved in this story. And, and you did just that. You, you uh, continued his work to find the truth of what happened. He, so he began his um, kind of investigation, so to speak, in the early 70s, um, but he didn't tell you the story until 1980. Am I, is that accurate? Uh, no, it was 1960, well, 1963 when he came across his information. Right. But when, but when and, you and were, he, a, and, he, yeah. and he was, you know, he had it in the back of his mind. And John had given him a lot of stamps, uh, Lindbergh theme stamp. My, John mm-hmm. taught my dad all about stamp collecting. How old my was John? Was what was the age difference between John and your father? Well, John was born in 1904, and my dad was born in 1916. So when when the crime was committed, John was a 27-year-old man, and his brother Walter was 23. Okay, so he's your your dad was 15 and so 1963, your dad reads uh, the article in True Magazine as he's sitting in the barber shop in Dallas at the age of 47. Light bulb Correct. kind of goes off and he begins uh, his quest to kind of find the truth. Got it. Amazingly, one of the amazing parts of this story is um, I was able to, you know, there's only so much 
information that could be found out about John and Walter Knoll because they were never suspects in the case. There's quarter million files at the New Jersey State Police Museum, uh, where, I, as I mentioned, I've been there probably 130 times doing research. Um, so I had to, you know, go through ship records and immigration records and documents and applications to become a citizen and, and all, all this kind of stuff. And I was able to find, you know, some stuff that was pretty um, compelling. Like, for example, the first time Noel ever goes back to Germany, he left Germany in January 1925. And the first time he goes back to Germany, he goes back in splendor on the SS Manhattan. Um, and he makes his return on he leaves Europe to return to the States on February 13th, 1935, the very day that Bruno Hauptmann is convicted in a New Jersey court of murdering uh, Charles Lindbergh's baby. So the very day, at, at which point, obviously, from following the international newspapers, this was this this case exploded internationally. I mean, Lindbergh was by far the most famous person in the world. This was by far the most famous child in the world. And so uh, at that point, Noel knew for sure that uh, Hauptman did not rat him out on the witness stand. So, I mean, I, I found several details like that that were very compelling, but it wasn't enough. And so uh, the only the only option I really had was to go to his family. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, and through nephews, I found out I got his obituary and found out that he had had a sister named Agnes Bryling who lived who had lived in Mount Clemens, Michigan. And then I got her obituary. And then from that, I got um, found out that she had three sons who were still alive. And um, I, you know, it was this was one of the more difficult cold calls I ever had to make in my life. But I call, ended up calling her her son Rudolph, or Rudy, as he is now, was known. And, uh, you know, of course, I couldn't tell them, say that I, you know, my, hey, my dad thought he thinks your your uncle killed the Lindbergh's child. Uh, so mm-hmm. I had to, you know, I had to just say that, you know, I, I, I got him on the phone uh, and I said, is this Rudolph Briley? He said, yes, this is Rudy Briley. I said, Rudy, um, may I ask, are you the son of Agnes Briley? Well, yeah, I sure am. I said, well, then are you, that would make you the nephew of John and Walter Nolan? He goes, yeah, did you know him? I said, no, but my father did. He grew up in the Bronx three doors down from him, and John helped him with his stamp collection and so on and so forth. And could I, you know, I was just wondering, could I come meet you? And so he invited me to come to his home. And as it turned out, my best friend from my school in Dallas, St. Mark's, lived in nearby in uh, Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. And uh, Rudy and his wife, Sharon, were in uh, Macomb, Michigan. And uh, anyway, so I get invited to dinner. And Rudy gives me a big handshake. He has this whole family to invite, invites me over. And uh, his wife, Sharon, comes up and gives me a great big hug at the door. I'd never spoken to her. And I, I found that was a little bit odd. But we've, we've ended up becoming the closest of friends. Anyway, I ended up getting information about john uh i mean he was a very very strange fellow i got photographs of him 
it is a dead ringer to the police sketch that was done of Cemetery John. And through Rudy, I ended up meeting John's daughter-in-law, uh, John's only son, with whom he had virtually no relationship, uh, had died, had recently died. But I went to Tucson, Arizona to meet John's daughter-in-law, Adrian. And through that, I got this photograph of John sailing on the SS Manhattan in splendor, uh, uh, dated in December of 1934, right before Halpins to go on trial. And then I got another photograph of John from Adrian that showed that he had a deformity in his left thumb, which was the most prominent uh, feature described by the intermediary of Cemetery John. Let's switch gears uh, for a minute and talk about uh, what you learned about the uh, the day of the kidnapping. The baby was put down to sleep and um, I guess had a had a had an early nap time and then would be woken up for dinner and then put back to to bed for the night um, and shortly thereafter was discovered uh, missing by. Uh, the nursemaid, Betty Gal. Um, yes, at 10, at 10 o'clock. Yes, right. when that was her, her time to, it was, that was her time to uh, check on the child. Right. And some indication that they thought perhaps Charles Lindbergh had played a prank. He was apparently known for his pranks. Um, and uh-huh. then uh, shortly, uh-huh. shortly thereafter, a ransom note was found. Thank you for listening in. Stay tuned for the next part in this conversation. If you're interested in starting a podcast, visit the contact page at njcriminalpodcast.com and send Meg a message. She'd love to discuss your legal podcast.